0: Bible Books in 30 Minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner.
1: In this episode, we're focusing on the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus sounds like an epic story, that's for sure. Mike, in in a sentence, uh, what is the book of Exodus about? The word Exodus means departure, escape. And that's really
0: what this whole story is about. In the book of Genesis, we'd ended up seeing the growing family descended from Abraham, growing as God promised, but they'd ended up in the wrong place, not in the promised land, but in Egypt to avoid the famine. And this story is about how they escape, why escape, we'll see in a moment, how they escape, how they come out of Egypt to get back to the place
1: where God had designed them to be. Perhaps just remind us of of where we are on the timeline then. What's happened between the end of Genesis and where we are at the beginning of Exodus? Well, a long time has passed. In Genesis, we saw how God's
0: plan went through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons that Jacob had, one of whom was Joseph, who'd ended up in Egypt as a slave, but risen to become Pharaoh's right-hand man and had brought the whole family down there to be able to escape the famine back in Canaan. Now, as we come to Exodus chapter 1, you know, we've just turned a page or so in our Bible, haven't we? But a long time has passed. In fact, it's somewhere between like 275 to 300 years. Oh, that long. It's that long. And so it tells us at the start of this story that a new king arose who knew nothing of what Joseph had done. Now, for king, we would probably say a new dynasty because that's exactly how we would describe it. Now, we know there are various dynasties in Egypt over the years and a new dynasty arose that neither knew nor cared what had happened to the previous dynasty. Why would you be bothered about them? So whereas the previous dynasty had looked after the descendants of Joseph, this new dynasty knew nothing of that, cared nothing for it. And we find in chapter one of Exodus that what is happening is exactly what God had said would happen, that the descendants of Abraham would grow an increasing number. So this new dynasty, this new Pharaoh now finds this, Growing, let's put it in our language, this growing
1: immigrant community. Because these are the descendants of Joseph still living in Egypt. Absolutely. And they've been there growing for the
0: last almost three centuries. So clearly the numbers have grown very significantly. We'll discover that by the time they flee from Egypt... The numbers it gives us are over 600,000 men plus women and children. So a very significant population growth to the point where Pharaoh's dynasty now feels threatened by these growing immigrant community and begins to deal with them at first by turning them into slaves to build their great cities, then even wanting to kill off the baby boys so they can stop growing and multiplying but what stands out is despite everything that is thrown at them, this family keeps growing. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants.
1: So whereas Joseph was in a privileged position, military in the palace uh, there in, in Egypt, his descendants aren't any more. In fact, exactly the opposite from what you're saying. Exactly the opposite. To the point of being forced to become
0: slaves to build these great cities that the pharaohs were well known for. So a complete reversal. Again, it's almost an echo of Joseph's story, isn't it? From up at the top, here we are right down at the bottom. What is God doing? Well, what God is doing is God is about to act because the book opens with us hearing that God heard the cry of his people. Now, why did God leave it that long? We don't know. We're simply not told. But here is God now hearing the cry of his people and about to lead them on to the next part of the story, that Exodus will take us through. Is this where Moses comes onto the scene? It is. Moses, we discover in chapter two, was one of those little baby boys that should have been exterminated. It was terrible. They they were told to, the midwives, the Egyptian midwives are told to throw the baby boys into the River Nile. What was the River Nile full of, of course, Crocodiles. The Nile itself was a god, so it wasn't just wiping them out. It was an offering to one of their gods. And Moses should have been one of those, but his mum had a little ploy. Some listeners will remember the story of the little Moses basket. She makes this little basket. Actually, it's the same word as the ark that Noah had had a little mm. container to be able to survive the waters. And she puts him in there, hides him in this little floating basket among the reeds. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe one day. hears the crying of this little baby and thinks, what's that? Sends a maid to Luke, comes back with this baby and says, oh, it must be one of those Hebrew, which is what they were called then, the Israelite little baby boys who've been put there. His mums obviously didn't want to throw him in the river. Do you know what? I'll take him home. I'll raise him as my own. Perhaps she'd been wanting a child herself and had not been able to have one. So now Moses, who was born a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, is now taken out of that very risky community and is brought up in the palace as an Egyptian prince with all the finery and luxury and privilege that that would have involved. But of course, with all the skills being learned that he would need later in the story, he would learn how to read, how to write, how to organize, how to lead, These would be skills that God would use. You know, very often God uses the skills that formed in our life long before we knew him later in our life, once we do know him. And that's certainly the case
1: with Moses. That has echoes of Joseph's story, who was in a privileged position in the palace.
0: Yeah, but we discover that one day he went out, was watching what was going on, and saw some of the Egyptian slave masters cruelly treating the Hebrew slaves. Now, he must have known where he had come from. You know, he must have been told at some point, because actually his own mum had been used as a wet nurse to bring him up for a number of years. So she must have told him, I'm sure. And he goes to the rescue of these slaves who are being cruelly treated, kills this slave master and feels he has no option but to flee. A bit odd, you know, as a prince, why would he have had to flee? Well, we're simply not told. But he flees east to the desert to Midian. So he has been way up at the top. He's now way down at the bottom, living a life of a desert shepherd. Hmm. While he's there, he finds a wife. He marries a wife there. And it's while he is there during, wait for it, another 40 years. Hmm. Hmm. Now You know, we don't get the sense of that time. Just two or three chapters are passing here but by chapter 3 at the end of another 40 years so he is now 80 years old mm, getting on a bit <laughs> and he's about to have an encounter with the god of abraham isaac and jacob who he has known of but not known you know it's very easy still today to know about god to know not lots about him but not to know him personally moses is about to have an encounter with this god That will completely change his life and the life of his people.
1: And is that the story of the burning bush that didn't burn up? It is, Exodus 3. Bushes
0: spontaneously combusting in deserts where temperatures can reach 40 degrees centigrade is nothing unusual. What was unusual about this was it caught fire and it burnt and it burnt and it burnt and it burnt and it burnt. burnt. Until eventually Moses, who's looking after his sheep, says, I need to go over and see what's going on there. And as he approaches this bush, he discovers that God has chosen to sort of come and manifest himself, show himself in some way through this burning bush. And he hears a voice saying, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And then he starts to engage in a conversation with this voice. You know, who are you? And he discovers it is the God of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that this God is going to send him back to Egypt to be the one that he will use to set his people free. Now, he's he's really worried about this. How can I do this? I can't speak. I, I don't have this. I don't have that. But God gives him a revelation of himself. And above all, he makes himself known by his name. Sounds a bit weird to us perhaps today. But he makes himself known and says that I am who I am. But you can call me the Lord, Yahweh. What an odd name, but a name that is bringing home that God is the one who is always there. He always has been, always is now, always will be. There never has been a time and never will be a time when God isn't. God is the God who. Always is. He is there for us. And he is going to be there for Moses through all that is going to unfold in the incredible story that lies ahead.
1: This encounter, you said, is not going to just change Moses' life, but the lives of many others.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because God sends Moses back to Pharaoh with a simple message Let my people go. Now, of course, Pharaoh's not very keen on that because this people who he wants to let go is his workforce, his unpaid workforce for building all these fabulous cities. So he goes and says, uh, in the name of the living God, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, uh, no. <laughs> so God has to tighten the screw somewhat. And that's where we get the stories of the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt oh. as a way of tightening the screw the locust the flies all of those Ooh. the boils the nile turning to blood by the way those weren't just nasty things this is not God sitting in heaven saying right what nasty thing can i send on egypt now oh, i know boils they won't like boils each one of these things that god sent represented an egyptian God. The fly was a symbol of an Egyptian God. The cows that died were symbols of an Egyptian God. The Nile was seen as a God. The sun that was blocked out was the greatest of God's Ra. This is a fight. This is God saying, you want to fight? You want to know? Because he'd actually said to Moses, who is this God that I should obey? Here's God giving the answer. And little by little by little, challenging every single one of the Egyptian gods until it gets to the greatest god of all, the sun god. And then with the Passover story that follows, the gods of life and death. Egyptians thought they could control what happened through life and death. Hence all those mummies that we see in the museums when we go and visit. You could prepare for death and God shows them when he's at work, you can't even prepare for that. So this is a challenge. This is God not being nasty. This is God gently turning up the heat more and more and more to answer the question that Pharaoh has asked. Who is your God? This is who he is, the greatest God of all, the one and only God. And that God says to you, let my people go because I hate it when
1: people are enslaved. And by the way, God still hates that today. You mentioned Passover. What was that and what was the significance of it? We find the story in Exodus chapter 12. It was an event
0: in history, but that would be commemorated annually still to this day by Jews. And it was the final visitation, the final challenge from God that would lead to the Egyptians freeing his people. So, what God said to his people was, right, listen, get ready, pack up whatever you can get, be ready to go quickly. What I want you to do before you do go, before I lead you out, is I want you to kill a a, a male lamb or a goat. I want you to take its blood and to smear it all over your front doorposts. Bit weird, isn't it? But smear this blood over the doorposts. And then I want you to have a meal, a last meal of that roasted. Goat or lamb with unleavened bread, bread that's not had time to rise, you won't have time to do that. And as you eat that meal, this night the angel of the Lord is going to pass through the whole of the land of Egypt and he is going to take the firstborn. Now, remember, that's what Pharaoh himself had done, he had callously thrown the firstborn into the River Nile, belonging to the Hebrews. You know, and what goes around comes around, what we reap, we sow, the Bible says. He is now about to lose his firstborn. But wherever that angel of the Lord who passed through the land of Egypt saw the blood on the doors of the Israelites, he would pass over their home. That's where the festival name comes from. The festival when the angel passed over their homes. Why? Because they were
1: protected by this symbolic blood and the doorposts. The people have now been freed. Where do they go? What What is the escape route? Pharaoh says, get out of here. Get out of here. That's it. His own son,
0: his own firstborn has now been taken. So he wants them to get out. So they pack their bags. They've already done that. Moses gathers them together And they head east. This is the exodus. This is the exodus. They are going to leave. They're going to come out from their slavery. And they head for home, for the land of Canaan. We're told there were at least 600,000 men plus women and children. So that means there could have been up to a couple of million people. Huge people movements. And geographically, how far are they needing to go? Well... If they had gone the straight route, it would have been a 10-day journey in those days, because they're walking, remember. But they're going to have quite a digression. As they head east, thinking they're getting away, they suddenly find themselves confronting what's traditionally called the, the Red Sea. The Hebrew actually says the Yamsuf, the Reed Sea, a reedy, marshy area. And they feel trapped. Pharaoh suddenly changes his mind, chases after them with all his chariots. He's thought, what have I done? I've let my slave force go. Chases after them. Moses has to call out to God and say, God, we need you. God says, stretch out your rod. And as he does, a strong wind blows. The waters dry up. The people of Israel are able to pass through to the other side. Pharaoh chases after them. But the wind stops. The waters come back. The muddy ground clogs up their chariot wheels the Egyptian army that pursued them perishes while God's people are freed. That which would have consumed them and controlled them is swallowed up in the same way that Jesus does that for us through his death on the cross. Now, they should have, yeah, 10 days, should have made it. But they don't go via the quick route because there are quite a number of fortresses along that route, including Egyptian fortresses. And so instead they head south towards the south of the sinai peninsula and head towards
1: mount sinai which becomes another key point in the story so they're free they're free of the egyptians they're on the way to the land of canaan by this circuitous route are they happy (laughs) well people are funny aren't they and they also have very short memories So they are,
0: of course, exceedingly happy. And Moses is the best thing since sliced bread, isn't he, when they escape there. But, of course, what are they walking through now? A desert. And what is it hard to find in the desert? Food and water. So what we find in these chapters as you read them is a mixture of people trusting God and loving God, but then also grumbling and complaining. Why have we got no food? Why have we got no water? There's actually one part in both in Exodus and later in Numbers where the people said, you know what? We would have actually been better to go back to Egypt. You know, do you you remember all that good food we had there in Egypt? Suddenly they've forgotten They're repainting history. So it is a very mixed time for them but will also be a very precious time because of what God will give to them and do for them when they actually reach Mount Sinai. How does God provide for them then when they're in this wilderness situation? Oh, what we'll read, for example, is he provides water for them, miraculously tells Moses to strike a rock at one point and water breaks out. You'll find that in chapter 15 and 17 he provides quail, birds, whole flock of quail just come and land at their feet one day. Any of us who know anything about it, birds will know that was a supernatural act without any doubt. And he provides something called manna. Now you're going to ask me, what is manna? Indeed. And I'm going to say, I have no idea. In fact, the very Hebrew word manna means, what is it?
1: <laughs> right.
0: And they had no idea, but it was this Crispy substance that used to come down every night, some sort of miraculous type substance that used to come, almost a bit like dew, I suppose, we would see, came down each night. And God told them just to collect enough for that day. He said, don't collect more than you need, because if you do, it'll go rotten. And those who were greedy and did collect more found it did go rotten. So there was both, if you like, a heightened natural provision, still God's intervention through water and quail, but also a supernatural provision. Still today, God's able to do both of those. There are times God uses circumstances and works on people and events to make the provision that we need. Sometimes there's just something
1: quite supernatural that no one could have foreseen or wangled. Here they are in this desert environment, a large number of people, as you say. I mean, what are the guidelines for living, bearing in mind that they've been slaves not long before. Exactly. It's almost like reforming society, isn't it?
0: And that's where the next bit of the story comes in, because when they get to Mount Sinai, they make an incredible discovery. And you can read about this in chapter 19 of Exodus. What they discover at Mount Sinai is that God's plan was not just to free them from their slavery, but to make them into a people of his own that he would use. You will be for me a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he will tell them. And he makes what is called a covenant with them. A covenant we might describe as a binding contract, but this is going to be a, a contract that's wholly of God's doing. They can't bring anything to the party, but God makes this Covenant, this binding contract with them to be their God and to call them to be his people. So, what we've got now is not just, oh, people have been freed. People have been freed to become part of God's new people and to carry forward God's plan. Still true today, by the way. Very often, when we come to faith in Jesus, the first thing we discover is, hey, I've been forgiven all my stuff, all the bad stuff that's gone wrong. And the focus is me and Jesus. And then suddenly we discover, no, actually, I've been brought into a big family to become part of God's purpose. So from chapter 19 onwards, God is going to not just make them his people, but what do a people need? Well, as your question suggested, they need some rules to live by, to form and shape their society. So in chapter 20, we get what we know as the Ten Commandments. Actually, the word commandment isn't used in the Hebrew. They're called the Ten Words. Just ten little words that God has for you. Don't have any other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath. Take a day off each week and remember me on it. And so on. Exodus chapter 20 Listeners can read that account there. And then, having given these 10 basic laws, that by the way are still good principles for any culture and every, any civilization to live by, uh, they then get unpacked in the chapters that follow. Scholars call it the Book of the Covenant, where this gets unpacked and applied. So, what does it mean to do this? So, What you will find as you then read on from chapter 20 to 24, having given the Ten Commandments, we then encounter that applied for life there in the desert that will follow. What is the focus of their lives? Well, the focus of their lives will become expressed in the final part of the book, which is chapters 25 to 40, where God tells them how to build a Tabernacle sounds a big, fancy word, doesn't it? It really means a tent. You know, the Hebrew language that the Old Testament is written in has no word for temple. It never has a word for temple. It it uses the word house, God's house, or here, God's dwelling place. And what God tells them to do is, now look, if you are going to be my people, Exodus 19, And live by my laws, Exodus 20 to 24. What's going to happen when you're going to break those laws, as you almost certainly will? Well, you're going to need a means of getting our relationship right again, aren't you? And so from Exodus 25, God gives instructions for how to build a mobile sanctuary, a tabernacle, a tent. that. On the outside, when it was all dismantled and put on the cart to carry away, really looked like nothing. It was just covered with wild animal skins. But when set up, was beautiful and embroidered and purple cloths and great detail given in these chapters. And to be honest, when you get to those chapters, it, it, to us today, it can get a little bit hard going because it almost reads like the equivalent of a knitting pattern or a sewing pattern of how to create these elements in the tabernacle. But the thing to bear in mind is what God is giving here is detailed description of a place where you can meet me, where there will be an altar that you can bring sacrifice. And we'll look at that more when we look at the book of Leviticus, a place where you can offer sacrifice for your sin to be dealt with and for you to be forgiven. So we've got them called to be God's people, laws to guide life as God's people, now a place where that life can be restored when sin comes along and ruins it. And also, of course, where they can come and worship God. And the key word that underlines all of this is holiness. God is a holy God. He's different from you and me, He's set apart from us. And we can't just trample into his courts. And when things go wrong, we need to have a means of saying, sorry, thank God we do have that still today. Now, not through animal sacrifices, the New Testament will tell us, but through the sacrifice that Jesus did for us that always lets us come back to God and say, I'm sorry and claim his forgiveness
1: again. So in my mind, I've got this picture of this nomadic people, many of them, with their tents, um, with this special tent, I suppose, at the centre of the whole Operation. Is that right? Exactly. And all their
0: tents were placed according to the tribes, quite detailed instructions given for this, with the tent of God in the middle. Symbolic. God wants his tent at the middle. By the way, it didn't always stay in the middle, metaphorically speaking, because one of the sad bits of these final chapters is on one of the many times that Moses goes up and down the mountain. He doesn't just go at once. There's at least... About 10, I think, times I've found he goes up and down the mountain to talk with God while he's up there. The people feel that he's up there an awful long time uh, and end up saying to Aaron, Moses' brother, what's happened to Moses? I, I think he must have fallen off a cliff or some wild animal have got him. He's not coming back, is he? You know, what are we are going to do now? I, I think we need to make a God and let's go back to Egypt. That's all we can do. And Aaron foolishly listens to them. Don't listen to pressure from people. It's nearly always wrong. And he says, well, bring me all your gold ornaments. And they smelt it down and they make what? A golden calf. What was a calf a symbol of? An Egyptian god. The apis bull was an Egyptian symbol, a bull with a, a sort of a sun symbol between its horns. So here they are in effect saying we might as well go back to Egypt and it's at that point Moses comes down and he's so angry he smashes the two stone tablets of the 10 commandments two copies of them and they have to be redone again and it's only because he intercedes with God and God reveals himself as an incredible gracious God by the way one chapter you cannot miss reading in Exodus is Exodus 34 where God calls Moses up the mountain after this event and Moses I think is a bit scared about what's going to happen because God says I can't let you see me you're going to have to hide yourself in a rock while I pass by and as he passes by he passes by and says the Lord the Lord the gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin this is who God is. Oh, and he'll go on to say, yeah, and a God who doesn't forgive sin if it's not dealt with. But the first thing out of God's mouth is that he's gracious and compassionate. It's still the same today. Moses was fearful for what would happen to him and the people. But what came out of God's mouth was words of grace and forgiveness. And that's an absolutely
1: key chapter when you're reading this book. In conclusion, then. What justification do you give to read the book of Exodus? For me, the
0: thing I love in the book of Exodus is what it shows us about God. Right from its beginning in chapter three, when God reveals himself to Moses, he is. God always is. There is no place, time, circumstance, situation, mess where God cannot be there with you in it. That has taken me through many a situation. God always is. Right through to that chapter I just referred to, Exodus 34, where he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. You know, the devil wants to convince us God's always an angry God sitting in a chair waiting to say, I'll cut you out. He is not like that at all. And the book of Exodus shows us the sort of God that God is but it also is a book that calls us to respond by the sort of life that we live in grateful response. Whether that be, I cannot have my people living in slavery, to being a people who honour our father and mother, to don't cover our neighbor's possessions, who do look after our animals and all these other things that are included in these laws. A God who is a God who forgives and is gracious and loves us And now a God who says, and now I want to invite you into a journey of learning how knowing that can transform every single part of your life and your society. It's a book that calls us to keep God at the center, to keep trusting, to not paint an over rosy picture of the past because it's never a true one. And this is a a journey, it's an exodus, but it's also a journey. It's not just coming out of what you were in, it's come and join God on an exciting journey to a new place and a new way of doing things. And those who discover that God find their lives completely changed. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB,
1: check out the website at ucb.co.uk.